Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you as ever by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and the media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. Today, I'm delighted to say my guest is Jody Manel, who's the chief executive of Live Kindly, a platform founded by Jody to promote the benefits of a plant-based lifestyle. Its growth has been such that it's now become The Collective, an organisation which has raised over $500 million in investment in the first 12 months. So, Jody, welcome to the podcast. I have to ask by starting with this question. Did you ever predict as presumably a vegan? I mean, for all I know, you might be a massive carnivore, but I'm assuming you are vegan. Uh, (laughs) Then did you ever predict this slightly strange thing where I had always assumed throughout my youth, when vegetarianism was far from unknown, but veganism was pretty niche, that you'd almost have a kind of reversal where strangely veganism almost became, if not more common, certainly more prominent and almost noisier as a lifestyle alternative than vegetarianism. You would expect it to be gradated, wouldn't you? You know, omnivore, vegetarian, vegan. And yet, strangely, the the plant-based lifestyle has completely surged. Did you ever expect that? 10 years ago, say, assuming you were a vegan then, as I said, (laughs) I'm making a massive assumption. Well, about seven years, I've been kind of on and off vegetarian, um, plant-based, flexitarian for most of my life, um, but like fully, you know, um, no animal products for about the last seven years. Um, And you're right in terms of noisiness. We're we're a very noisy group. Um, I think that, you know, typically the... vegan community if you want to put it that way has had kind of negative connotations in terms of the activism and you know how aggressive they can be in terms of their approach of things but yeah I mean if you were to ask me 10 years ago no I definitely wouldn't have and it was much more of a niche even when I started Live Kindly four and a half years ago so as much as I wanted it to happen and willed it to happen you know it wasn't something that I would have expected now. And presumably it's a strange kind of concatenation of the original motivation was very much around animal rights rather than health and lifestyle. In fact, I can remember vegans who are contemporaries of mine at university who are hugely defensive 
uh, always quoting statistics that no, it wasn't actually something that led to vitamin deficiency and you could have a perfectly adequate survivable diet uh, without any animal-based products. I seem to remember them getting a very exercised about honey at one point because the question was honey obviously is not actually an animal product but the debate is whether it exploits bees. Um, but we'll park that for now. I, I, I don't know which side of the honey debate you're on. Um, it's controversial, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll leave that. But what's interesting is it's now a strange alliance, I suppose, of people who genuinely believe it's better and healthier. There's the environmental question, which didn't really raise its head in the late 80s when I first came across this. And then there's also the animal rights issue, which is really the motivator for the growth, do you think, among consumers? 100% the sustainability factor. I mean, everything else comes into play. Um, but I think, you know, what we've seen in terms of, I mean, I'm talking about Live Kindly's community, but I see it obviously on a much broader spectrum than that. When you look at everything that's happening in the media and, you know, something that we're, we're all talking about these days, it's climate change because we're seeing the real effects of it. And so thank God for the internet and access to information because this is how we are learning about the solutions and the problems right now. Um, you know, it's definitely an entry point for people to connect the dots to other things. People are becoming more health conscious. Um, you know, you can be a very unhealthy vegan, though, as well. Just want to point that out. But You, you um, could also, yeah. it's fair to say, be quite an environmentally unfriendly vegan, can't you? In that certain plant-based products actually have quite a bad either footprint or consume huge amounts of water, for example, in proportion to the actual protein mass that results. Yeah, I mean... If you were to compare them against, um, you know, any kind of animal product, they always, you know, are much less in terms of the resources that they use. But yes, you can you can have a, an environmentally kind of like damaging uh, diet as well, even if you do eat plants. So I think being conscious about consumerism in general, when that comes to food, when that comes to, you know, buying fashion, like all of this stuff, travel, is something that we all need to be mindful of. But, you know, I do believe that, and it's true when you look at the data that animal products are one of the biggest contributors to climate change. It's interesting. Obviously, I've got to you know, slightly stand up. I'm descended from generations of Welsh sheep farmers, so I have to occasionally push back. But I'm generally sympathetic. Um, my view is also that there is a question where, to some degree, environmentalism is a philosophical and aesthetic movement as much as it is specifically about carbon emissions in the sense that I think there is a desire disproportionately among the wealthy. And I think there is a question we have to ask here, which is, is the plant-based lifestyle something which is almost a counter-signalling uh, mechanism among wealthier high-status people, which has the worrying, the worrying concomitant possibility that it won't really scale. It will be profitable, it will be large enough because there are enough wealthy people in the world who will adopt it. But if it doesn't scale beyond the highly educated and the and the well-paid, then obviously the environmental benefit won't be so great. And I always ask myself this question, some part of this is I think it's what you might call the 21st century equivalent of what perhaps 100 years ago would have been a Quaker revival or a 
you know, a, you know, a, a religious revival, which is that people have an urge to live differently. They feel that there's something unnatural about the volume and pace of consumption, which maybe isn't really contributing to happiness very much above a certain threshold. Now, I'm very, very clear about the threshold, by the way. When I talk about this, I'm making it absolutely clear that I don't want to prevent people in India from having a moped. OK, uh, I'm emphatically not talking about that. But there probably is a sense among the wealthier proportion uh, of society that levels of consumption have become a little bit zero sum. And therefore, these movements are a way in which you can set yourself clear line in the sand rules, which just limit your consumption to those things which kind of matter. Do, do, do you think there's an aesthetic dimension to this or almost a kind of it's very hard to describe whether it's moral, whether it's aesthetic, whether it, you know, whether it's actually that we kind of want a Scandinavian aesthetic, which is a slightly more minimalist middle class world. I don't know. Do you think that also drives it? I definitely think it plays into it. Um, you know, it's such a complex issue and you really need to think about it from so many different angles and different factors that come into play because, you know, and to speak about what Live Kindly is trying to do, we're coming at this from a very inclusive approach. You know, we need to kind of understand that we definitely don't live in a vegan or plant-based or sustainable world right now. And so there are changes that need to be made. But in terms of accessibility, um, in terms of like the culture of, you know, elitism around minimalism and, um, you know, exactly what you were just talking about, you know, that all of this, all of this does come into play. And, you know, some of our um, goals and our mission in the content that we're creating is to help people, no matter what point of their journey they are on, to live a little bit more sustainably in a way that is sustainable for them and enjoyable for them. It's not about restriction and it's not about, you know, flexing or anything like that. It's not about showing, you know, how good you are. It's about doing better for yourself, for the planet, for the animals in the way that you can. And, you know, we have to think about it from so many different angles. You know, there are people with very low income that can't afford to live this way because they live in kind of food deserts and they don't have access to, you know, even fresh produce, um, let alone kind of vegan alternatives. The price point for a lot of vegan alternative products is, you know, way too high for a lot of people. So, you know, even going back to basics and living off of rice and beans and potatoes and pasta, like there's that option, but, um, you know, it's not always doable for everyone. And you kind of need to weigh up, you know, what do you want to kind of sacrifice in order to give yourself a better life? And what do you feel that you can do to contribute to the rest of the society and the rest of the community and the world itself? So yeah, it's a complex issue. We don't have the answer for everything. All we know is that we need to make some improvements here and drive the world to a better place. I mean, in some ways, quite a lot of trends seem to be on your side anyway, and that a very large part of the decline in meat consumption is not driven by people becoming vegetarian or vegan strictly. It's simply because convenience foods, a classic example would be a pepperoni pizza, contain a diet which has, a, although it contains meat, contains a much lower proportion of it. And of course, at the cheap end of the market, meat is expensive, whereas, bluntly put, carbs are cheap. Carbs have a longer shelf life than meat. There are huge sort of distributional advantages to having those sort of long shelf life products. So we see, I think, a general decline in meat consumption pretty much across the board in the developed world, not always driven by actually an act of will, but sometimes driven by convenience. At the same time, I think there's something really interesting about, for example, the brand Beyond Meat, in the sense that what was so interesting about the choice of those two words 
is that it wasn't suggesting self-sacrifice or hair-shirtedness or compromise. It was actually suggesting that here was a plant-based product which was kind of meatier than meat itself. And I thought there was something interesting about that because quite a lot of the environmental movement and quite a lot of the plant-based food movement is driven by a kind of extravagant display of self-denial. I mean, it was something... Um, the Quakers were very conscious of this, that uh, in, uh, in the 18th century in the United States, I think it's John Wallman, an extraordinary man, was criticising Quakers for what he called almost sort of ostentatious simplicity, that you, know, you were almost showing off how modest you were. But what's interesting about this is that I, my fear about that is that it, it only scales to a certain extent. And so something like Beyond Meat has the interesting promise that actually you can reduce the meat in your diet without actually reducing enjoyment or indulgence or the, the feeling of a treat. And of course, it's priced accordingly, it's fair to say. Is that part of your collective, by the way? I mean, you're creating this global network. How far does it extend? I'm really intrigued. Yeah, so um, it's not part of the collective. So the collective is our parent company, um, Live Kindly got acquired just over a year ago. So the collective, just uh, for everyone listening, owns a, a portfolio of plant-based food brands uh, for meat alternatives from anything from like chicken to beef alternatives. And Live Kindly, my company is the media kind of arm and we remain kind of like journalistically independent. And we really talk about the whole movement, not only with plant-based, but sustainability in general. So just to, just to clarify, there. But in terms of Beyond Meat, they are not part of the collective's portfolio, but they are part of uh, Blue Horizon's portfolio. I believe that they were um, a very early investor and Blue Horizon owns uh, the collective. So yeah, just a you know bit tricky to kind of grasp that. But, um, but yeah, definitely, you know, we're involved in this overall space and many different plant-based products. And what Beyond Meat has done is phenomenal. You know, the thing is, people don't necessarily give up meat because they don't like the taste. It's for other reasons. And whether it is for health improvement, whether it is because they care about animal welfare, or if it is for sustainability reasons, you know, people don't just one day wake up and think, oh, I hate the taste of this after enjoying it for 10 years, you know. They make conscious decisions to change their diet for many, many other reasons. And, you know, from our standpoint as, um, you know, a media and lifestyle brand, we also want to come at this, you know, without judgment. We are not here to speak to vegans or here to preach to people and tell them what to do. We're coming at, coming at this without judgment at all, because to your point, you know, the people that are driving the most impact and the most change here are the flexitarians, the ones that are maybe giving up one or two meals a week, you know, and removing meat from their diet or dairy. And so we really want to be as inclusive and broad as possible and say, look, you can make a difference. You don't need to go full vegan. I might be, but you don't need to. Um, what you can do is make a significant impact just by being a little bit more conscious with what you do consume. It's an interesting point because you're absolutely right in saying that flexitarians are your friend to a great extent in that most people will, not everybody, some people, my daughter who's a vegetarian, uh, she made, made the decision when she was, I think about eight but it was a more or less an overnight decision to stop eating meat. But many, many people make the journey gradually. There's a statistic I once heard that if the United States reduced its level of meat consumption to that of the UK per capita, it would make more difference than if the entire UK went purely vegetarian in terms of you know, animal lives lost. Oh, that's shocking. <laughs> which is kind of interesting because the UK has 
I, I suppose a little, it's probably been a slightly lower meat culture for some time, I think. And the US, of course, is unusually high, isn't it? Particularly in beef consumption mm -hmm. is p particularly high. Right. But um, I think it's very interesting. So you're, you're deliberately stepping away from what you might call the sort of absolutist or preachier part of the message. And you're simply positioning it as a, as a choice, not necessarily, a, you know, an absolutely moral imperative, simply because, OK, there's what's right and true and there's what's effective at persuading people. And, as we know, as I know from working in advertising for 30 years, the absolute factual truth and what is motivating are not necessarily one and the same. So so how, how does your media brand work? It's it's mostly digital, presumably. Is it or are you thinking of going into conventional media forms? Traditional, I should say. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're fully digital right now. Um we've been operating for yeah, four and a half years and you know, I definitely think of uh, Live Kindly as you know, a movement and a brand in itself, not just media. I mean, currently, as we operate, we're very much digital media. But, you know, we have huge plans for the future to, um, you know, expand outside of that. We have a very strong, loyal community that's continuing to grow, um, highly engaged and, and definitely, you know, a good mix of flexitarians and vegans and, you know, people from all different kind of walks of life or, you know, different cultures. And so we want to continue to expand that and nurture our community. And so we, we're kind of you know, stepping out of just digital media and not into tr traditional media, but more into that experiential world. So, you know, you can think of us doing lots of events and stuff next year. There are some big plans in the works, which I can't talk about too much right now. But yes, there's, uh, we kind of want to own the movement of kindness because this is what we're all about. And, you know, while we started in plant-based food, and that's definitely a core vertical with what we talk about, um, there's so much more to this than, um, yeah, I mean, we're talking about a whole lifestyle here. Yeah, so you, you could see this extending, without obviously giving away any trade secrets, you could see this extending to, for example, energy consumption to low emission vehicles, uh, uh, more environmentally sustainable transport and so forth. It, it's not purely confined to diet because the title is brilliantly, actually brilliantly flexible, isn't it? It allows you just to brand stretch to quite a high degree. What, what, what do you find is the most effective way or the most effective medium for persuading people to at least attempt or experiment with a, a plant-based diet? Our approach in terms of the content that we produce is like entirely non-judgmental. And so we just really like to go out there and put out the solutions. We remain entirely positive in everything we do. And that can be a difficult thing because, you know, of course, the nature of climate change is not a positive subject to talk about. Um, but when we're talking about plant-based food, when we're talking about innovation in technology within, you know, transportation, travel and beauty and fashion, like all of this stuff, there's so much innovation and so much happening in this space. You know, we bring to light like a lot of these stories that typically don't get spoken about quite so much. Um, you know, my mission at the very beginning when I first founded Live Kindly was I saw all of the stuff that you see, you know, with the um, aggression and the judgmental nature that people typically associate with vegan activism. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't associate with it because I don't think that encourages sustainable change. And there's so much negativity out there online in media in general anyway. So I wanted to put something positive out there that could really help people feel that they could participate without, you know, being nervous of being judged or criticized by, you know, a community forcing them to be perfect or 
go vegan overnight. I, I don't subscribe to the whole label thing. I personally call myself vegan, but you know, in terms of the brand and Live Kindly, this is just something that is open for everyone to try something new and hopefully they'll enjoy it. It's about you know, creating more accessibility and positivity around this way of life. It's very interesting because one of the things I, I, I find as a, you know, as a copywriter for 25 years, and I think much of the language of sustainability has been catastrophic, not least the word sustainability itself, which almost contains within it the implication of doing less of what you want to do rather than it actually being an equally attractive alternative. And, uh, you know, I think it's perfectly possible to reshape consumption in the future uh, you know, to and I think we've seen actually a hint of this during lockdown, which is, you know, the volume of business travel, for example. People have suddenly had an epiphany that quite a lot of it was probably symbolic or performative rather than strictly necessary. And I think it's perfectly possible for society, both individually and collectively, to reconsider what is important to a good life and to rethink it. And yet most of the language of, say, sustainability or... Uh, uh, Nestle, very interestingly, uses the word regeneration. And I think that's a positive. If you talk about, for example, rewilding, it actually implies a quality of life benefit to what you're doing. Whereas um, much of the language, I think, I think actually they, they used the language when they were talking to religious people in the US, they used the language not of sustainability, which suggested left-wing people they didn't like. They used the language, I think the word was stewardship, which is a familiar biblical concept and therefore one that actually effectively broadened the appeal of what they were doing. And, I, and, and also I think that the, the focus on carbon, even though from a scientific viewpoint it may be the most important facet, it may not be the most motivating facet in terms of human behaviour because it, it, it effectively immediately frames the thing as a question of self-denial and reduction of consumption rather than simply a change in the quality of consumption. You know, one of the ways in which we can continue to grow economically and, and actually enjoy relatively fulfilling lives is simply to buy less of better for example you know and so this idea that um, I think it comes from mainstream economics which is the idea that all consumption is welfare enhancing which is which is regardless of the quality of the consumption anything that anybody chooses to do regardless of the context the circumstances or the motivation is necessarily good and I think if we can break that, and so one of the things I'm very happy to see is the very title Live Kindly actually does contain the promise of a slightly nicer quality of life rather than the quality of kind of hair-shirtedness, which I think obviously the most vehement adherence. I mean, there, there was an early generation of vegans. I've got a friend who's a vegetarian who always said he hated vegetarian restaurants in the 80s and 90s because they were really restaurants for people who didn't like food. He'd happily go to carnivorous restaurants and order the vegetarian alternative. But uh, there were exceptions. There was a wonderful one in Brighton, uh, which is called Food for Friends, which was actually excellent. But I remember going to vegetarian restaurants where everything was kind of green, tasteless and pretty unpleasant. And I suddenly realised this was actually, it was conspicuous non-consumption. It was, you know, it, it, you know, it was equivalent to kind of religious groups who used to self-mortification or sticking spikes into your thigh, you know. And, and, and I think there's something really interesting about this which is you're capturing the positive side because as I said the, the very first adherence and the most fanatical adherence in any movement 
often possess qualities which are deeply off-putting to the mainstream of the population. And so the change actually happens at the margins. I think that's you've spotted that, which is... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fantastic. What do you see as the future of consumption, both in foodstuffs and everything else, uh, for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Do you see this trend continuing, stalling? Do you hold out hopes for insect food, which I think is kind of debatable, um, but is, is, is worth considering? What excites you about the next five to ten years? Firstly, thank God that vegan food has uh, come a long way <laughs> since you were going to vegetarian restaurants. I mean, um, you know, my recent trip to, to London earlier this year, I mean, you have so many incredible vegan options in, in the UK. And I, I don't live there anymore, but... Just one tip, don't, don't, don't go to Paris. Don't go to France. Um, but the UK is very, <laughs> yeah, very good for vegetarian right. food. That's right. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the future of food, I mean, it's hard to say. I, I don't think we're at the point where we need to look at insects for protein. I really don't believe that. But um, but yeah, I mean, look, we're looking at solutions, obviously. And, um, you know, we're exploring many paths from plant-based to cultured meat to, I mean, I'm sure that everyone has seen the huge rise in dairy alternatives. I think we'll see that obviously within the kind of like animal protein, plant-based meat sector as well. You go and look at any kind of refrigerator in any grocery store now, and probably like two thirds of it has a ton of plant-based options. So, you know, that's just dairy alternatives. And when we talk about meat, I, I truly believe that, you know, plant-based is going to have a big stake in the future. But I do think that, you know, if we're talking about 20, 10, 20 years down the line, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for, you know, cultured meat for those who don't want to have the plant-based alternatives. And I think this is why I predict that it's a growth area and why the huge level of investment we've seen in it uh, is not entirely crazy, is that if you look at the social dynamics, first of all, the more plant-based or meat-free alternatives there are available, 
a, you know, a large part of people's shopping choice is actually a product of what's available and in what ratio. Then you also have minority rule, where at some point in the UK, I can't quite date it, but it, and it, it will obviously vary by region, by demography. But at some point in the UK, it was unacceptable for, to provide food without a vegetarian alternative. OK, so there had to be a vegetarian alternative. Now, what the vegans have done is very interesting because there has to be a vegan alternative as well, which tends to mean that your typical restaurant or your typical catered event or your typical dinner party, if it contains a vegan option and a vegetarian option on the menu, well, already, let's assume puddings tended to be meat-free anyway, OK? Um, first courses were more likely to be meat-free, but it means of the available entrees, as you call them in the United States, and we don't, but anyway, of the available entrees, at least two will be meat-free. There'll be a vegetarian one and a vegan one. And suddenly the ratio of meat-based to meat-free has shifted from 100 to zero to something like, you know, it's 60-40. And that in itself, just allowing for human preference without people making a conscious decision, will fundamentally change the way in which people eat. Because, I mean, you know, 100 years ago, not to eat meat was to mark yourself out as a crank. And effectively, it meant you more or less had to dine alone you know, or go to extremely weird restaurants. And that's completely changed. And likewise, when it comes to the supermarket shelves, even fairly mainstream grocery retailers, I imagine Walmart has, and so forth, has fa fairly extensive uh, ranges of meat alternatives and dairy alternatives. And just by the law of averages, this this will actually, ha you know, have a significant effect. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, like, interesting point. And there have been studies that have been done as well, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how people, from a psychology standpoint, like how people, when they read menus, you know, how they choose things, if they are labeled um, as vegan or if they have a separate vegan menu, you know, they're actually more likely to choose, um, talking about meat eaters or flexitarians, or more likely to choose the vegetarian or plant-based option if it's not on a separate menu, if it's just, you know, in with the rest of the food and it's not kind of like called out and singled out as something completely different. On top of that, you know, in terms of like trends and everything, um, you think about if you're going out to a restaurant with a group of people and one of them is vegan, who is going to choose the restaurant? <laughs> the vegan needs to eat something. So the vegan is going to be the one that, you know, chooses for it. So you really, if you're in the restaurant business, you really need to offer more vegan options. A kind of prediction, unless you're very, very good, the steakhouse is long-term doomed because the chance that a party of four or six people won't contain one vegetarian mm -hmm. becomes, you know, uh, more and more. Actually, this comes from the work of a French physicist called Serge Galan. It's called Minority Rule. And if you have a group where one person effectively can exercise a right of veto, which is, no, I won't go, we, I won't go there because the vegetarian alternatives are rubbish or non-existent. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's significant. We've seen KFC introducing uh, vegan chicken, yeah. for example. Um, and, you know, one important point there is that KFC, I think more than McDonald's, is actually a bit of a, it, it's a social food. And it's less, McDonald's is a bit more individualistic. Um, and, you know, it's a significant threat that if only w one out of every party of five mates doesn't eat meat and you're purely a meat-based restaurant, then you've got a problem. Right, right. Okay. So that the other question is in terms of the wider future, and I, I don't know the answer to this question. I haven't got a clue. I, all I'm doing is raising a possibility here. Um, in about 1928, I think, John Maynard Keynes wrote this 
paper, it's a short paper of about a thousand or two thousand words called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he predicted that in the developed world, the efficiency of production and the general accumulation of wealth will be such that people will be happy uh, effectively working about a 16-hour work week, uh, you know, two or three-day work week, and they would take the rest of the gains as leisure. And then the 21st century effectively, or, or sorry, the, the 20th century, spent most of its time kind of proving him wrong, in that ever new wants and needs were suddenly invented and manufactured but in most cases, I think they were genuine wants. You know, I'm not going to disparage anyone for buying a dishwasher or a washing machine or a television, even though these were once considered luxuries. But I do ask this question, which is, is there a kind of Darwinian limit to human wants? By which I mean that we assume with the 20th century as our guide, which was a period of disproportionate innovation. I don't think anybody, I'm not sure anybody will see as much change and in innovation, meaningful innovation in their lifetime as my grandmother did. She was born in about 1900, died in about, you know, 1990. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure anybody will see as much technological change meaningfully as that going forward. Now, the question I don't know the answer to is, is there a kind of ceiling to our evolved wants? Now, some people would argue, well, status wants are unfortunately, they're relative, not absolute. So you can never really satisfy them. But is there a is there a movement among certain people who go, well, look, as status seeking becomes ever more ridiculous, you know, in other words, if one um, upmanship becomes kind of absurd and comical, okay, then there will be a significant number of people who will kind of follow that, I think it's a Danish or Swedish idea of legom, which is actually, no, 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 there is a certain sufficiency of material goods and energy consumption for a high quality life beyond which the improvements are kind of trivial. So, I mean, you know, it's a question, obviously, slum relevance to the advertising industry, which might have spent quite a lot of the 20th century helping nudge those wants along. What do you think? I mean, OK, you're in California, which is a disproportionate and, you know, it's something of an outlier. But do you see something like that in California where, for example, everybody has a Tesla, whereas 20, 30, 40 years earlier, rich people would have had blinged up automobiles of some kind? <laughs> Now there's a kind of what you might call high status egalitarianism that we see. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I genuinely don't know the answer to the question. I just think it's worth asking and I'd love to know your opinions. Yeah, no, that's that's a really interesting thought. And um, it's it's true. I don't have the answer either. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of Teslas in Los Angeles. So um, yeah. <laughs> I'm also guilty of driving one. So I feel called out here. But um, but no, I, I, I see that. And you know what I think, you know, it's hard to kind of formulate my, my opinion so quickly on something like that. It's a really smart question. But what I actually think is it's more it's some a change into something else. I don't think there is a wall, so to speak. I think it will just shift. The wants and needs will just completely shift. So right now, it kind of makes sense. And I don't think, you know, while in some regard, in some communities, it might be about that one-upmanship. And this is what we're really trying to steer away from with what we're doing at Live Kindly. So there are communities that are kind of behaving that way for that reason. But I do believe that, you know, this movement or however you want to call it in terms of, you know, being more conscious about consumerism, 
is not at its core about that. I think it's just becoming a bit more about that as you see more celebrities talking about it, as you see more influencers talking about it, as you see, you know, companies greenwashing and talking about it, it makes it feel kind of superficial. But I do believe that, you know, from the grassroots movement of what it has, you know, all originally started, there's a lot of meaning behind what is happening here. And there is a need for it in terms of, you know, combating climate change. So it's not really, you know, when you go back to thinking about the blinged up cars and everyone having like big Rolexes or whatever, obviously times have changed since then. Consumerism has changed. Um, But the motivation behind that wasn't because of a need or a feeling of like, wanting to contribute or do something better I think the the motivation and the driver is different um so yeah I don't necessarily have the answer but I I do believe that it's more going to be once we get to a point of hopefully living a bit more sustainably together in this world you know if that's going to happen then you know that that kind of movement is going to shift into something else and maybe we'll just go through another cycle but let's hope not (laughs) no I mean it's interesting because as I said I don't think it's possible to predict and I think it's perfectly reasonable to position environmentalism as I said not as a compromise but as an informed choice Mm -hmm. it's simply a decision among you know a significant enough group of people um, you know, maybe you know, maybe they're not uh, demographically representative. Maybe it varies by age. You know, let's be honest. When I was twenty-five, I wanted a lot of things. You know, one of the slight annoyances of life is that you get more and more money as you want less and less. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the kind of slightly annoying contradictions. I wish I'd been rich at the beginning of my life and poorer later on. In many ways, um, but I think I think positioning it as simply a choice. Not, an, not either as an imposition or as a necessary compromise, is perfectly valid intellectually. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And people value autonomy for its own sake. We like things we've chosen much more than things that are imposed on us. You know, it's a very, very simple lesson. Um, and so I think what you're doing, what I'd love you to do, if I can ask a favour, I'd love you to do something for solar power, domestic solar power. Because I think the genius that's gone into the improvement of the panels and the improvement in efficiency and low cost of manufacture has been met by an almost equivalent level of stupidity in how they're sold. Because, you know, the assumption is I go and have I have to go and spend $30,000 to fix something irremovably from my own roof in a one off decision with a small chance, but nonetheless a measurable chance of total catastrophe, whether it be structural or the local power provider won't credit me for the energy I put into the grid or it's not compatible with my electric car. So, you know, the whole system, I end up spending $30,000 for, you know, what is really a white elephant on my roof. And if you could give some attention to promoting this and finding ways in which it can be sold to people in a more modular fashion, so they can try it at a smaller scale and then expand over time. I think there's enormous, you know, we've seen, as you said, the plant-based lifestyle has enjoyed disproportionate success really for marketing reasons, okay? Some of it's technology, some of it's availability, but a large part of it is just a change in mindset. Uh, The slight tragedy with solar power to me um, is that they've achieved all the technological improvements, but they haven't actually given any thought to how to sell that technology in a way that people find appealing. So if, if there's a brief I can give you, it would be that, because it seems to me the biggest waste of meaningful innovation. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's a coincidence that Elon Musk, Henry Ford, uh, Thomas Edison were massive hucksters. They were salesmen as well as being inventors. 
Okay, they were evangelists as well as being inventors. And I think the solar energy industry has completely, you know, missed out on its kind of Elon Musk or its Steve Jobs. Yes, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, obviously being in marketing, you, you see this more than anyone. But I completely agree. And this is about, you know, kind of what we're doing here. We're selling a lifestyle. People buy with emotion. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's no emotion with solar panels. There's a lot of work that needs to be done there. And yeah, you're right. Actually, you, need, you need a degree in electrical engineering just to understand the spec sheets, don't you? I mean, yeah. it's just <laughs> totally impossible. You know, OK, I'll get my PhD in high energy physics and then I'll come back and install these bloody panels. Yeah, there's nothing sexy <laughs> about it at all. <laughs> nothing sexy at all. No, absolutely. Whereas I thought if I could have a solar powered car, if you sold me the means to charge my car through solar, the idea that I'm actually driving around through the power of the sun would be inherently cool in a way that 3%, you know, 7% off your energy bill simply isn't. Exactly, exactly. We need, I, I agree, we need someone like Elon Musk. We need someone who can be the face of it and make it cool and innovative and, yeah, user-friendly as well. I mean, it just seems like a huge hassle. So I agree, and I'll keep my eye on it. But, um, but yeah, I, I've seen the same issue as you have. So <laughs> we've got a long way to go. But I think I think what you've done is you've created this umbrella organization, which I think will be, um, by the way, extremely popular with advertisers, I suspect, as well, because it's also like, uh, because you have generally a knowledgeable readership, a readership who are disproportionately engaged. It's a very reliable way to signal the authenticity of your message, which is to display it to that readership. It's very difficult to greenwash someone who's genuinely committed. And I, I've grumbled repeatedly about, you know, companies which talk about environmental sustainability while going to a huge length to avoid paying tax. And I, I occasionally refer to this as planting a flower bed on the Death Star. You know, you have this fundamental organisational business, which is environmentally damaging and you, you perform, you know, trivial symbolic acts. Now, here's, here's a, little, a, a little other suggestion, which is I think one great thing you can do is if you can design the choice architecture by which people can get from where they are now to an equally or more enjoyable but sustainable uh, lifestyle by telling them what the meaningful gestures are. And, you know, now I think I think we can we can achieve this by a mixture of a few big changes in behavior, a few medium sized changes and a few small changes. The problem is, is that um, these there was a campaign a few years ago and I, I met Stephen Pinker and he apologized for being involved in this, which was turn off your mobile phone charger when it's not charging your phone. OK, as a way of saving energy. And as he said, this is actually a disaster because it allows people to perform a sanctimonious act while actually it's like spitting in the Pacific as far as the difference it makes to energy consumption. It's just utterly trivial. It's the same as giving up plastic straws, honestly. It's all in fishing nets. You, you, yeah. you were a bit sceptical about that as well. Were you? Yeah, I was a bit, I have to say, because I kind of went, as the Australian comedian said, well, I tend to avoid creating marine pollution by not throwing my straws in the sea, <laughs> right? And it does strike me that one of the things we do need is, is because it's a complex system, you know, what what's intuitively sensible may not actually make much of a difference. And so by providing a kind of bedrock of sensible, informed information um, and, and by making those pronouncements to a presumably, you know, more informed audience, I think what you can do, uh, and I think advertisers will find that actually useful, you know, the, the, the good advertisers will find that a useful place to uh, put, uh, if you take advertising, maybe you don't. 
We do, yes. And um, Good. Excellent. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense for brands um, who are working with us who want to position themselves not only as, you know, whether it's sustainable, eco-friendly, vegan, whatever it is, you know, we have um, a great platform for that because being associated and being a kind brand is something which is so important. People want transparency with what they're buying now, whether or not it's, you know, vegan, it's is it cruelty free? Is there palm oil? Like all of this stuff, you see the amount of labels and certificates that products have and people really want to understand like, is this an ethical or consciously produced product? And there's not a lot of transparency in the industry. So we're really working hard to work with great brands and future great products, um, not only from an editorial perspective, but also in the uh, brand relationships that we're securing as well. But yeah, just back to what you were saying, um, you know, we really want to empower individuals to make change. But at the end of the day, it is the responsibility of um, the companies to do this. So while, you know, as an individual, every kind of purchase you make, you're voting with your dollar, you're telling the company what you do like, what you don't like. Um, and they see that in the sales. And, you know, the companies only can care about the revenue, right? And so if you can make an impact, it's by voting with your dollar. Like I said, it's not the responsibility of the individual. It's the companies that really need to make a shift to be able to make any kind of meaningful impact or difference. But, you know, it needs to be driven from somewhere and it's, it ultimately comes from demand. Funnily enough, I'm going to make the most outrageous claim here, which I nonetheless half believe, which is that advertising and brand building can strangely be a major contributor to this. Because where our expertise lies in the creation of non-material value, which is the creation of value through meaning rather than the creation of value through objective reality. And therefore, if you pay for brand value, if you're paying for meaning, meaning generally requires much less carbon to manufacture than actual quantity does. And similarly, if you look at, for example, high-end branded fashion, it has a resale value because the brand value endures, you know, a... Bluntly put, a piece of fast fashion clothing loses 90% of its value when you carry it out of the store. You know, it goes from being new to effectively pre-owned and it, it's landfill with it after seven cases of wearing. Whereas if you, you know, if you look at high-end branded fashion, the value resides in the brand and the implicit scarcity. And there's a huge second-hand market for kind of, you know, high-end fashion for the 1970s, the 60s and so on. So the, the understanding of brands actually is not necessarily inimical to a cleaner, more sustainable world because brands provide us with something we're willing to pay for, which doesn't demand much carbon in its creation, which I suppose, you know, that's meaning at some level. So no, I think this is very, very interesting. I'm totally in favour of what you're doing because apart from anything else, I generally think that we should always start by trying to change with voluntary choice first incentive second and compulsion third and so much of what government does does it the other way around it starts with legislation if that fails it moves on to bribing people and only when that fails does it actually try asking people nicely and i think that it is perfectly possible to change a huge amount of behavior by being nice and kind and actually <laughs> your brand name is the perfect encapsulation of exactly that i agree and need more kindness in the world in general these days you know it's it's very much needed by everyone. Uh, it's weirdly selfish, actually, because generally acts of kindness leave you feeling better. So actually, the, you know, there's no actual trade-off here, necessarily. I think, actually, one of the problems is we've created a world designed by economists around the idea of entirely self 
interested individuals. And um, they actually create a world for people who are more psychopathic than humans are in reality. So it's something, you know, we've got to be really alert to the influence that economics has on human motivation. You know, it always assumes people want more quantity at a lower price. I don't think that's, you know, we see hundreds of categories where the opposite is true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, people do want quality these days. And we're seeing, especially in the new age of consumers, they're really shopping their values. So, you know, what the world is today, I don't think is going to be the same in, in 10 years with, um, you know, the Gen Z and the millennials. It's a completely different mindset. I think that's I think that's true. You know, it is status is, if you like, the the instinct to pursue status is probably innate. But the currencies we use to display it are very, very malleable. And so uh, you know, a slightly more... Now, there, there is, I'm going to say, there's a counterbalance to this, which is you might argue that the pursuit of ever more educational credentials has become a status game. And that in some respects, it's actually less democratic uh, than the pursuit of material goods. So, you know, we have to be a little bit alert to this. Now, in, from a pure carbon point of view, you might argue that it's actually... Our education might be relatively harmless, but it is nonetheless... I think, you know, I think we can say that that actually your degree or your MPhil or whatever it is, you know, your post degree qualification is the Chevrolet Corvette of the (laughs) of of the 2020s. And so, you know, it it pays us to, you know, it pays us to be actually very open minded about why people are doing things and what Mm -hmm. for. And generally, zero sum games are not a great use of human time and effort. Yep, I agree. But this has been absolutely fantastic. All I can say is I'll, I'll, I'll become an enthusiastic reader and consumer of everything you produce. And um, uh, are you broad scale? You're pretty optimistic, are you, for the, uh, um, the possibilities of achieving a large part of our ends through simple, voluntary, decisive action as a choice, not an imposition? Yeah, I, I fully believe in it. And, you know, I think that it's the only sustainable way to, to maintain that when people feel empowered and they feel they've owned their own decisions, this is um, the marker for sustainable change and long-term change. So, yes, and I, I would never want to be responsible for forcing someone to do anything, you know, against their will. So, you know, this is um, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I've got a really a, a final challenge for you, which is I think you should campaign for the United States to have four weeks of mandatory paid vacation. I agree. <laughs> I haven't had one for years. <laughs> and, no, no. It will actually. Uh, part of my point is that generally the ratio of money spent on goods versus experiences, I think, is skewed by the lack of leisure. Henry Ford spotted this. Now, okay, his purpose was to sell cars. But I think you could meaningfully change consumption and and improve the level of consumption and the intelligence of consumption if people had a bit more leisure, because the focus on goods would shift to a focus on, you know, lived experience. So that's a that's an oblique way for you to pursue your goal. But it's a brave person who will take that one on. (laughs) Yes, I'm I'm going to do it. I'm working on it. And more kettles. The Americans need more kettles. Yeah, Um, that's (laughs) (laughs) No more saving tea. But apart from that, you're doing pretty well, I have to say. Well, thank you enormously for that. Thank you, Roy. That's all for this episode of On Brand. The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, just visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. Uh, the series is produced and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision and a great job they do of it, I have to say, every time. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And for purposes of some algorithm or other, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then do give us a like. 
So thank you for listening and here's to next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.